Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morales. My co-host Jason Bryant is on assignment in Oakland. I'm glad to be here. I got two guests uh, that I'm really, really excited about to have share their stories, not only about incarceration, transformation, reentry. David Ray here I met for the first time today. Hey, David, good to see you. We've been connected through LinkedIn, and then I have Jared Nava here. Jared was facing well over 400 years as a teenager and a juvenile in Southern California. And today he's out, sentenced to 162 years to life um, with what seemed to be no light at the end of the tunnel. 162 years of life, but yet he's here uh, 10 or 11 years later. Uh, 10 years now. 10 years. So how did that happen? That's what we're going to talk about today. Jared's story was featured on a documentary called They Call Us Monsters. It's on Amazon Prime. It's probably in a lot of other places, but that's where I found it. And I watched it already about three times. Uh, it was emotional. Uh, very emotional. We'll watch the trailer here. little disclaimer. These aren't, uh, we didn't all uh, relapse and go back <laughs> to some of our old ways here. It's water, liquid death water. There's new advertising about it. I'm here at Darling New Media Studios. It's great to be here with you, Nate. It's good to be here with you, Jared. And uh, David, welcome to the Prison Post. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Definitely. Let's check out this trailer. <laughs> Come on. This is the honeymoon suite. What's up, Juan? Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> Some antique art we had installed. Spice it up a little. Hotel California. You could check in anytime you want, but you can never leave. <laughs> Tonight's special, underage criminals robbing and raping people in the streets. There are no violent offenses that are juvenile. You shoot somebody, you're an adult. These are our evil people. Mini Charlie Mansons. I'm facing... 200-something years before attempted murders. And you can tell you right now you're lying. No doubt in my mind that you shot. The judge ruled in my favor. You're gonna go home? He's using crystal again. I'm, I'm sure. The front passenger pulled out a gun and said, you are gonna die today, bitch. I really want some monster. I got any West. Is there one story that you'd like to tell? The loss of innocence. I said 400 years, it was 200 years. <clears throat> and um, I think about that video and uh, the polarizing ideas across the United States about juveniles in prison. Here we have a uh, former Speaker of the House saying, you use a gun, you're an adult. I don't care if you're 10 or 12 or whatever. But um, for you, that was, how many years ago was that filmed? That was filmed in 2014, no, uh, 2013. 2013. So it's about nine years ago now. Nine years. When you see that trailer, um, I'm curious about have you how many times have you watched it? Do you ever watch it again? Um, and then when you look back to that and you see yourself as a teenager, like, 
come on in, you know, and the Hotel California line. And and uh, when you see that back then and Antonio and Juan that you were with, what are your thoughts? Honestly, every time I watch it, it kind of like it just hits my heart reflecting back on that time, um, reflecting on being incarcerated at that time. And then just kind of it, it's bittersweet because it was a, like probably the best time I had in jail was during that time of shooting the documentary. It felt free at that time. However, it was still rough knowing that watching myself trying to cope with what I was facing, the fact that I knew I was going to get life. I didn't know how much. Um, but watching it always kind of brings that back, just kind of trying to cover up that pain that I was feeling at that time by just, you know, being a clown. That was my biggest defense in life is always just laughing things off. And so even watching it, like Juan hasn't hasn't got the opportunity to come home yet. He goes to board next year. But even seeing him and just knowing his change, even at that time, it's always hard to know that I'm home and he's still in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's bittersweet. How did you guys get chosen to go to be a part of that documentary? So um, Scott Budnick had brought uh, two guys in, Ben Lear and Gabe Conway. He brought them into um, a few units. No, I think he only brought them into W and the compound. Where's that at? In Silmore, California. Okay, Silmore. So the compound is basically a jail inside the jail for all high-risk offenders in Southern California. And so he brought them in, and then uh, we kind of just sat down with them in the day room. I don't, I don't remember exactly how um, we got chose or, or how that came to be. I, I can't remember exactly how that even happened. But um, they asked us, and we are just like, yeah, why not? Right. At first we were looking on like they're kind of goofy. They're coming into juvenile hall, yeah. like asking us questions and we're just like, who are you? Right. Like that's automatically at that age. And in that that space, you're going to be skeptical. Like, why are you asking me these questions? Like, yeah. And then but um, they expressed that it was going to be a writing class. And all three of us were in inside our writers, which was a writing program that took place every Saturday in the compound. So was that with Scott as well? That was with Scott and other volunteers. A little background on Scott. Uh, so Scott Scott Blennick, um, he was a well-known um, movie producer. Produced movies like The Hangover, uh, Old School, uh, v- various other ones. But he ended up coming into the compound in two thousand five. Um, he went with a friend, which is kind of odd. Like let's go into a, a juvenile hall, right? So he went into the juvenile hall and he's seen all these juveniles were facing life sentences, and I think that he's seen more in us then I think, you know, the average person would see, right? The average person hears about a crime and they're just kind of deterred by, like the, the Republican senator has said, you know, these many Charlie Mansons. And yeah. I think he's seen more in us. He's seen potential. And so he began to invest that time and come in every Saturday and just kind of show us that there was more of the life than the little neighborhoods that we grew up in. Yeah. And there's sort of that, that boldness to him. Like, he's not only... Shoot, he's never stopped, right? He, he was the original founder of uh, Anti-Recidivism Coalition, um, the executive director, CEO. He's built it. It's one of the most uh, well-known organizations in terms of uh, helping formerly incarcerated people when they get out. <clears throat> one thing I like about Scott is, you know, he, he put some action behind it, and he was a part of SB 260 and SB 261 and uh, what was uh, AB, even, AB? Even before that, with SB 9 and any juvenile LWAP. Yeah, so, yeah, it's been a long fight with a lot of bills. And that passed, right? Yes. And what was that bill? So SB9 was um, no longer allowing juveniles to get life without the pos- life without the possibility of parole. Was that 14 and 15-year-olds? 
no, just in general, juveniles under the age of 18. That oh, was really? the very first like piece of legislation that kind of snowballed SB 260 and then further legislation. So before SB 9, even if you were 12, 13, 14 years old, which goes on a lot of other states, you could get life without the possibility of parole. Yes. And what are your thoughts about that? And David, feel free to jump in here. What are your thoughts about somebody who's 13? I mean, it happens. I've heard about it in Florida, 12-year-olds, LWAP. And uh, there's a big campaign out here, Drop LWAP. And I think about a 13, 14-year-old, imagining your mindset. I mean, I went, in at, I went in at 20 years old, and I didn't get out till I was 41. But you're there at 16, and now looking back on that mindset of, of a you know, fully underdeveloped brain, you know, and, and science backs that up now. You know, impulsive thinking, inconsequential thinking. And um, when you look back, what do you feel about those laws that used to, and in some states still do, um, give life without the possibility to parole to a teenager? I think it's tragic. It's tragic in the idea of trying to um, bring about rehabilitation. You're telling somebody who's never, like, even in a lot of sentences that we were still getting, you know, or even the deals that were offered 30 years, uh, 25 the life. Uh, even 15 to life feels like I ha- some kids hadn't even lived 15 years. And you're telling right. them that they're going to get that to life. Um, but saying that somebody's going to get life without the possibility or giving them an astronomical number, even like 40, 50 years to life, which I've seen a lot of my peers get when we we're in juvenile hall, is, is tragic because and at that time you're just like, well, it's over. And so what do you do? You know, a lot of people, they go harder, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to numb. If you, if you don't know how to deal with, uh, that kind of pain, right? That's traumatic to experience that, not to negate the fact that we committed crimes, right? However, you can really tell when you're in those spaces and people who, um, if you haven't visit those spaces, you'll see that they're just kids who made a bad decision based on a lot of things that they grew up seeing. Like they didn't just wake up one day and yeah. go out and commit a crime. They didn't wake up one day and go out and get a gun. These are these are kids who come from an area where this is normal. And that's that's the issue. Why is being a gang member or why is um, walking around with a gun normal for these teenagers? Instead, the focus is on how much time should we give them? Because majority of the time, at least for me, right, when I committed my crime, I wasn't thinking this is going to carry three, five, seven or 10, 15, 25. Right. You're not thinking like that. So the issue needs to be not on going harder on crime, but on bringing understanding and seeing what's really going on in these neighborhoods. Yeah, really looking at looking at the individual, and the, and then with California laws, they have these laws like mandatory minimums, and say, well, let's not look at the factors. I know that he grew up his his mother and father in out of prison. He was in foster care. He was beaten. He grew up in a high stress neighborhood full of gangs. Um, it was you know, taking all those different factors into play. Uh, they're not doing that. It's did you do it? Um, can a jur- jury prove it? Okay, what's the mandatory? Life without the possibility of parole. 50 to life. David, would you share um, a little bit of uh, your story, your background, and also your thoughts on this? Yeah, You didn't know it, but that's a really good segue. Um, as I was fighting my case, you know, I had just turned 18, and I was trying to get my youth and foster care, child abuse, and various things to mitigate some of the Mm. Things that would be like a reason why I didn't, I just didn't wake up and, and do it. Like it built up over years and the judge happened to be my juvenile uh, judge throughout my whole early life. And then he became my adult court judge at 18. So he was aware of everything from 
you know, child abuse to being taken out of my home at 13 to be growing up in foster care, in and out of juvenile hall, and all the trauma I went through. And very coldly said, I'm not going to allow any of that into the case because it'll cause sympathy with the jury. And it was election year. You know, the prosecutor on my case, I think she became a judge during that election year. It's just, uh, I can remember, to back up, as as a 14-year-old kid, before my case, they were just starting to send juveniles to prison for life as a kid. And it affected minority people for the most part. And I can remember my 14-year-old mind saying, how unjust is this? It's like a form of genocide. You're wiping out future generations of fathers and grandfathers by never allowing them to be a part of their community, erasing any kind of man in the home. They might have kids, and now they're going to prison forever. I remember thinking, wow, they don't care about us. Mm-hmm. It's really racist. Like, and, and, wanting, and it became worse. I became worse because of that thinking. That they don't care about me. They don't care about our people. It got even greater, right? It was like an injustice. And I could just remember that, you know? And I, I really, it really turned me worse, I think. Yeah. And trying to bring up what I went through during my trial, not allowing it, it was, it was pretty traumatic. Yeah, there's a, it's the retribution model that, they need to go in there to be punished, you know, and you get the title 15 first page, the purpose of prison is to punish. Exactly. And they, they think like if they get punished enough, that's going to change them. <laughs> it's, it's really laughable. Uh, I never met anybody there who got punished and, and that made them, made them change. It's like, it's like, you wouldn't even do that to your dog. Like I want to, I want to train my dog to be obedient. So let me, let me, let me put him in a cage. Let me beat him on the regular. Let me, let me feed him the worst kind of food. Um, and then hopefully he'll be the best dog ever. They don't even do that to, to animals, and yet they think in some some twisted way that that's going to be um, that's going to work with us. And the same thing with me going in there, twenty five to life, nineteen ninety eight. No lifers ever got out. I didn't see one for ten years, and I thought I got to make it. It's like Jared said, survival. You know, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever it takes to to make it, go along to get along. I never used even heroin before going to prison. Now my celly who has a shot caller is like, you want to get high? Yeah, because that would give me some type of uh, um, uh, leverage to feel like I fat, fit in with them and yeah. I was accepted. What? How much time did you end up getting and uh, how long were you in there? I also fell in 1998. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a P number. Me too. And then I got out May 8th, 2014. I did 16 and a half years. I can remember those same type of situations but uh, I remember there was this one guy in diagnostics and he's like you're gonna be alright youngster just don't use drugs don't politic and don't gamble mm-hmm. and I never seen that dude again I often thought he was an angel sent and he was right as long as I didn't do those things you know I got to parole 34 um, the SB 260 had just passed it didn't apply to me because I was 18, but it definitely changed the atmosphere. I can remember my board member saying he was the youngest one on the case and getting parole. And then I got to come out and help SB 261 and the bills to follow. 
it was it was awesome being part of anti-recidivism coalition. So you got out and, and became a part of a solution helping policy SB two sixty SB two sixty one. Jared, you want to break down a little bit of uh, what SB two sixty meant? Yes. Yeah, so SB two sixty basically made it to where if you committed a crime under the age of eighteen and you received um, an indeterminate sentence, which meant that it wasn't a life sentence. Or I, I may be getting them mixed up. But if you if you received anything that wasn't a life sentence, you would have an opportunity to go before a parole board, your 15th year of incarceration. Even if you got 50 years, no life, you would get that opportunity. And if you received a life sentence, um, you would either go to the board your 20th year or your 25th year, no matter how much time you had. So if you had got, I believe it was like 24 years or something like that, then you would go your 19th year and you would go home your 20th. If you got found suitable. If you got found suitable, of course. And then uh, 25 to life, uh, basically, like from my case, getting 162 years to life, I then would uh, had the opportunity to go my 24th year to the parole board. And then so then 260 expanded it to under 23. So anybody under the age of 23 were now affected the same way. And then AB 1327, 1381, 1381 made it to where if you were under the age of, I think, 25 and 25. younger, they would take that into consideration in your parole board hearing, and then the same things apply. But why were they taking it into consideration? Because the brain's the, not the brain, yeah, the brain science. Your brain's not fully developed until the age of twenty-five. Um, is something that they they were able to prove, and so basically saying the culpability is not the same as somebody who's twenty-six, right. uh, even if it's just that year break. It's not the same. It's crazy if you think about the classification process when you come in. It was exact opposite. Always young. Give him more points. Oh, he's not married. Oh, he wasn't in the military. Oh, he doesn't have any stabilizing things in his life. Let's give him more points. And then you're 18 years old. You're on a 180 yard in Salinas Valley State Prison, surrounded by nothing but killers. And you're 18. Yeah. And you got to survive. And no hope. No hope. Yeah. The system's against me. Let's rise against. So you're already, we already haven't dealt with a lot of the trauma that we experienced growing up. <clears throat> We still realize that we're responsible for our actions, but now we're here, we're here in a, like you mentioned, Salinas Valley 180. I was at Calipat 180, Calipatria, and in the first month there, see a guy get killed on the yard. A lot of people have been there already 20, 30 years, no hope of getting out. No lifers ever got out, no hope, um, and people are in survival mode, and I'm not saying it's right. Um, it's not right. It's not good. It's, it's evil. It's dangerous. It's sad. Um, a lot of things that we've seen it happen, but with a law like SB 260, 261, 1381, it led to us making the decision because the punishment didn't change us, but we began to say, well, here's, here's a, a little crack, a light, you know, that I can see here's a possibility that I could have freedom and I could have a family one day. I could get back to my mom. And so I need to make some new changes. And I mean, in the reality and, and we're incarcerated around the same time still, um, people still weren't going home yeah. in the first couple of years after that bill passed, people still weren't going home. So even pulling up to the yard, um, now 19 years old, still not seeing lifers go home and still the, the aura or the stigma is if you're a lifer, you're a lifer. Yeah. Even though these bills have passed, it still wasn't, people were coming back with three fives and sevens still. So it really didn't change the atmosphere that much at the beginning too, when those bills passed, because people <coughs> still had that negative, like, well, they're not gonna let us out still. Right? Like, you get an opportunity to yeah. go before the board, but that doesn't mean anything. No. Like, 
You're still um, gonna get shot down. I'm gonna. Uh, I'll let our audience know. Like only two percent of lifers are found suitable at their first hearing. I was one of those two percent. Jerry's one of the two percent. Did you get at your first hearing? Second one. Second hearing. So second hearing, only about twenty to twenty-two percent get found suitable. Now remember, if you get denied, it's a three-year denial, a five-year denial, seven-year denial, ten-year denial, or fifteen-year denial. And I have friends who've gotten those tens and fifteens. So you did twenty years, and then you go in there and you get a fifteen-year denial. And um. And, 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 and I don't want to beat a, a dead horse, but you have a $16.9 billion budget this year. 3% goes to rehabilitation. So uh, if we're going to change, it's going to be up to us, right? And um, so, so, we're, so Jared, you, you're in that juvenile hall, and I'm curious, you know, as somebody who was 17 at the time, and the, your comprehension level, of course, you have, of course, you have the hallmarks of a youth, when... It finally comes out, 162 years to life. When you hear that, what were your thoughts? What was going on in your mind? What, thinking about your family? I'm sure your parents were in the courtroom. What were your thoughts? So when I got sentenced at that time, I was in L.A. County Jail. I had turned 18 as I was still fighting the case. So when I was 18, I was in the county jail. I was in the dorms. And I received that time. And I remember um, that day, I just, like... I was actually high when I got sentenced, so I just continued to, just to be completely transparent, you know, just continue to go into my destructive behavior and try to numb myself from what I was going to face. And I remember, you know, my mom wasn't there, but uh, um, my stepdad was there, and I remember, you know, him crying and stuff like that, and I just kind of, I was numb to it at that point. And then I think when I got back to the dorm and I kind of got sober, I realized that it's over. Like, I really recognized like it's over right and then everybody around me is kind of um feeding into my destructive behavior realizing that what i i mean that's the only way you know how to in those places sometimes that's the only way you know how to comfort somebody yeah. is by feeding into their destructive behavior and so people help me numb myself from the reality of what i was facing yeah and so i never really comprehended it until um i want to say a few months later when i was in reception so I got transferred to Chino reception and I'm sitting in a cell by myself. And I remember thinking about it, right? Like thinking like, this is it. And I thought, okay, I can wild out or I can give my mom a reason to still um, keep writing these letters. You know, like, like I could, I could still be an example to my sisters and my, and my mom. Like that, that's the decision I was faced with. Yeah. I was faced with that tough decision. Like, am I going to be selfish, continue to be selfish and just hide from the facts? Or I can embrace it and use it to fuel me to change. Yeah. And that's what I was faced with. And I had I had to make that tough decision of what I was going to do. And so I made the decision to to face it, to face the fact that I was never going to get out of prison, to face the fact of the crime that I committed. And I chose to serve God. You know, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't run from my problems. I stayed where I was at. Um and I just served God. Yeah. I made that decision. I'm gonna serve God, and and it's it's amazing because it didn't feel like I had 162 years. Like when I started doing that, it didn't feel like it. I felt free. Mm -hmm. I felt free because I finally took responsibility for what I did. I finally was taking responsibility for my actions and who I was. And I be I began to see that God was molding me into a man at 19 years old. Yeah. I think about that. A lot of people ask, like, well, how did you how did you do it? How did you change? And you shared it right there. You connect. It wasn't the punishment. It wasn't the sentence. It was all right. I'm going to be here. 
and who's the most important person in my life? You connected to something. And David, uh, I'm curious about what, what it was for you as well. For me, it was the same, my mom and God. I get, I'm in the level four, uh, being active, uh, start using heroin for the first time in my life, almost OD and die in the cell. And then I think, I'm going to die as a drug addict in prison. I've, I'm going to fail my mom again. God, help me. Change me. Give me another shot. I, there's no one else to call on when, you, when, there's no, when, when you're down to rock bottom and like that. Um, I'm going to call on him. And I, but I thought about that. Like I'll, I'd rather um, become somebody different and help somebody in here and make my mom proud, even if I'm going to die in here, than bow down to the ways of the, you know, the drug life, the gang life. And uh, if I'm going to bow down to somebody, it'll, it's going to be to bow down to that. Yeah. And um, so I bow down to God as well. What about you? It wasn't easy. It was fear, a lot of fear. You know, at any moment, there's a lot of people who don't make it out when they make that commitment. You know, it's not like out here uh, somebody could become a person of faith and still dibble-dabble in both sides of the world. <laughs> like uh, for, for me, I remember it's a very common saying, you're going to mind somebody. Mm-hmm. And I was a relatively big kid, um, didn't mind anybody. Um, but I found myself in the Tatchby shoe. My Haseli had happened to get a visit. And I found myself on my knees by my toilet, praying to God, saying, God, Jehovah, Jesus, whoever you are, you know who you are, and I'm talking to you. I need you to come into my life. I need you to send people into my life to keep me out of trouble, to steer me in the right ways. I need guardian angels in my life. Because if they ask me to hurt somebody, I'm going to do it. If they offer me drugs, I'm going to use them. I'm weak. I can't do it. I'm always going to say yes. I'm never going to say no. Without your intervention, it's over. And I know you want to use me. I I know that I'm called by you. So you kind of need to step up and help me because you created me for more than this. And, uh, in case you don't know what the, the shoe is, it's a prison inside a prison. It's you, four walls. You got a couple books, you're lucky. Uh, I remember I asked for a Bible and it came with a razor blade in the Bible. I don't know if it was for like a weapon to use or to kill yourself. I don't know. Uh, but I got a Bible and I started reading. And I started participating in Crossroads Bible study. Um, the court reporter who used to write about me in the newspaper, prosecutor tells of a cold-blooded crime. I gave an interview, and she had been praying for me for probably about nine months in trivial prayer. And uh, she said she felt her spirit pop, and the Lord sent her to see me. She's like, well, if you want me to go visit him, because she knew it was going to be a lifelong task, then you need to make it okay with my husband, because if he says, no, I'm not doing it. And he said, yes. And she's like, are you sure, Lord? And uh, so she wrote me a letter. And I wrote her back, and she was surprised. And she came to visit me. And I was a prosecutor. She was the court reporter. She was a newspaper reporter. Mm -hmm. Um, And she started visiting me. One time I totaled it, and I think it was like fifty dollars or $60,000 she had probably given me over the course of 16 and a half years. And I know it's not about money. But some people's love languages, receiving gifts or whatever. 
I never wanted for nothing. The Lord took care of me the whole time. I didn't have to sell drugs. I didn't have to do anything. But yet I still persisted in my madness. I still sodomized myself to bring contraband wherever I needed to bring it. Like, for what, you know? I wasn't until I was uh, in Calipatria State Prison. I went to a Kairos ministry. I came back from that ministry and I told the homie in the building that I'm done. That I'm going to turn Christian. And he asked me, do you know what you're doing? I said, yeah, man, I know what I'm doing. I kind of got mad because I had been doing this for nine years. Level four time. I knew the consequences. I knew that once I turned Christian, if I stepped out of line just a little bit, I was going to get stabbed. I knew that. And because of the love shown to me from God through other men who didn't know me, I turned my life over. I shortly got a transfer to Ironwood State Prison, and I introduced myself as David Ray, and I'm a Christian, not so-and-so from some other neighborhood. And it set the course for me getting home. Mm-hmm. I met David Garnica, who was a Christian on the yard. He plugged me into every self-help group in the college. And then I eventually got into the Braille program. Like, the Lord opened every door. And I remember my celly when I was 23 to 25. Christian turned in 1994. He's like, look, you only got 16 to life. I've seen this door open and close. Be ready when that door opens. Get every self-help. If they offer you college, do it. If there's anything you can put, anything positive in your file, do it. Because the door will open. And you don't want to be caught trying to get ready. You want to be ready. So I was a little bit younger than Jared when I started getting serious about putting my war portfolio together, getting ready. And when I went to my first hearing, I think it was if you were to hear it, you probably would have thought it was the best hearing ever conducted ever. That's how good I did. And the Lord said, no, not this time. And they they gave me a three-year denial, and I went back after, you know, there's a few gaps I left out, but, but when I went back the second time, I did horrible. They were pulling information out of me. And I got a date. But if I back up, in 2009, I said, I, I was telling somebody, I had a conversation, and I was like, I got my anger in check. And the Lord, I remember the Lord saying, do you? And there was a, somebody trying to challenge me in a vocation over a chair and a movie. And I visualized murdering him three different ways. Lord said, you got your anger in check? Mm. And then 2011, I was playing basketball, got into a little scuffle. This dude's like, you can't handle it. I said, no, you can't. So we just kept playing harder. And he took off on me, hit me like six times in the back of the head. But the Lord didn't allow me to get angry. He didn't allow me to get hurt. He didn't let nothing happen to me. I kept playing the basketball game. And I went to the side, and the dude came up to me and said, if you want to take it to the next level, we can. And I looked at him, and tears started coming from my eyes for, like, the first time that I could remember. And I was like, if I wanted to, I would have. And I can remember people coming up to me with knives, like, hey, let's handle this dude. You know, he just violated you. You got to do something. 
And I can remember other people coming up to me saying, man, it takes a lot. I really respect what you did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I got that second hearing. You're and, ready. I, and, I, and I've been out ever since. Like, it's just been God, you know, God yeah. and, and that, God. That's a good point that some people say, like, they think that just like we watched on the trailer. Well, they'll never be ready to change. And you're sharing right now. After this amount of time, I knew, even when I got a three to now, internally, what God revealed was I wasn't quite ready, and I could admit it. Yeah. You know, anger is a human emotion. You're going to continue to feel it. for the, We're going to feel it for the try to the day we die. But it's not about feeling the emotion. It's how you relate to the emotion. Before, I related to it where I would retaliate in various ways. And now I realize I can contain it. Exactly. And I can go out there and live as a responsible citizen. And each of us know when that moment is. When we've got ourselves to that moment through, whether it be through your faith studies or whether it be through addressing the issues, uh, underlying issues, uh, insight programs, therapeutic groups. It's all of groups. that. You do yeah. all of that. All of it combined, right? And you come to realize, here's who I want to be in the future. Yeah. And there's not any, and now nobody else has the power over me. Now I have the power no matter what. And uh, before, you know, you hear people say, uh, you don't understand. The reason why I did it is because they did that. And now we're at a place where you realize they could do whatever and they have no power over my choices. Exactly. <clears throat> so, so for Jared, you think about 10 years. So this is how I came across Jared. So a guy that I know out here in Sacramento who was at my wedding, he calls me up and he says, you got to meet this youngster. You got to meet this guy. He's 26. He had 162 to life. And he's a Christian brother, and he's working at the Senate, um, at the Capitol. He's doing good things. He took some program, and he got out. And I'm like, no, you don't go. You don't take programs and get out. <laughs> no. So, so I knew he had either the story wrong or the guy was lying to him. So, and I was like, nah, nobody's nobody's out after ten years. Uh, and he's like, well, let's go to lunch, and you can meet him and all that. And then I get there, and I begin to hear your story, and. It's beautiful. I think it's unprecedented. I don't know if there's anyone else in this whole nation who got out in 10 years on 162 years to life sentence. But even you, Jared, would be able to admit, were you ready after 10 years? Or, you know, if, if, if I needed more time to work on myself so that I would never go back to a place like that. Um, and um, it turns out you did. So how did you get out after 10 years? So I actually didn't even do 10. I did uh, about eight and a half Oh, my God. <laughs> so I did from 17 to 25, and uh, I got the second chance. And I think it started in there, right? I, I used to live, and I would tell, you know, my closest friends or people who would ask me questions, I'd be like, I live in here like I will live when I go home, right? So that means that I'm going to live in here and stay right up free and stay away from things, not because I'm living in here, but that's because who I am. So who I am here is going to be who I am when I go home. Nothing's going to change. I don't got to put on the act. I don't got to put on a different hat, right? This right. is just me. And so coming home at 25, um, I kind of shook the boat a little bit. And I was like, let me go to Sacramento, right? Because I'm from Pomona, right? I'm from L.A. All my family lives down there. And I shook the boat. I was like, I'm going to go to Sacramento. I'm going to step completely outside my comfort zone. Uh, Some of the first jobs I was looking was I was going to be a landscaper, right? So I was going to have to take the bus like like two hours. It's like a two-hour bus ride there and then it'd be a two-hour bus ride back to do that, right? Um, I, I say that to say that that's where my hunger was. 
because I was so grateful to have been given a second chance. I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever, right? But I'm not going to go back to doing crime. There's just not an option, right? I, I see everything in numbers now. Now I understand the penalty for everything, right? And it's like there's nothing worth that. No. And there's nothing worth the harm that you cause somebody. And so I just began to to figure it out. And I think one of the biggest things that I learned that I didn't know as a kid is to ask for help, right? So now um, when I didn't know how to build my credit or I didn't know how to go get a driver's license or I didn't know what was needed for a job, I just asked questions. Where before I would just feel insecure about it and I would just feel stupid for not knowing. Now I'm like, I'm just going to ask. Because me sitting here is not going to get me anywhere and I know I got to do these things, so let me just go and ask. So I just began to go out and ask questions. Um, I met David Ray through Scott Bundick. Scott Bundick plugged me in with him about, I want to say like a month home. Uh, he plugged me in with him and then uh, he would take me to church. Like I got out in the midst of COVID, so everything was still shut down. So you really couldn't go anywhere. And then the transitional house was real strict. They weren't letting us go out. And I didn't have no family anyway, so it didn't really bother me. But then, uh, so David started taking me to church. And it's crazy because, so David, before he got found suitable, um, so the yard that I landed in, he had just left. He had just got, he had just went home, but he had actually sat down in a race riot. Right. So they used to talk about him in church, him and a couple other brothers of that stand of what it meant to be a Christian, right. Of standing like, and really being strong in your walk. Yeah. And so it was kind of crazy to come full circle and then to meet him out here. Right. And then to, to come from the same, uh, just kind of like zeal of serving God. Yeah. It kind of, um, it just enabled me to to continue to to thrive out here. Honestly, talk about that support. You know, I, I put on I put on Twitter earlier. <clears throat> if anybody would like to ask Jared a couple of questions, what would they be? And there was a, a Lindsey Anderson who said, "What can we do to support youth who are currently incarcerated and those who are out?" I'm a law student and I want to work with the juveniles as public defender, but support cannot only come from those with knowledge of our legal system broken legal system. It has to come from all of us. And someone else said, I would like to know um, to pay someone from France or to pee to pew. Maybe I don't know. I don't know the pronunciation. Forgive me for it. But I would like to know if he manages to rebuild himself on the outside. If there's a support, because without support, I don't think you can make it. Yeah, definitely. I definitely had to find. I mean, I kind of found it kind of found me right like a support system. But I think it's been instrumental because um, like we were talking about earlier, um, you can't, I feel like we're built for community mm -hmm. just like in, in prison. A lot of like your story, right. Of how this, this, um, this group that you guys started and being able to fund that, that kid, right. Was because you guys came together as a community and said, we're going to make a change. Mm -hmm. And so since I came home, um, a lot of good people have been placed around me, right. Like even meeting you, but I met you through like three other people. So it's like, it's like just surrounding yourself with good people that are, are willing to support you and willing to, and even like, like David at times, I, I like having David around too. He's a really good friend because he'll, he'll, he'll like call me out. Like if I'm doing something wrong, he'll call me out on it. And you have to have people like that around you as well. Yeah. You have to have people around you. Uh, the Bible says that faithful are the, uh, no, the C4 are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right. So you got to keep people around you that are going to be truly seeking your best people who want to see you succeed and people who are going to be there for you when you don't. Right. And so I've, I've had that and it's been very helpful. Um, Scott is always a call away. Um, really my whole church as a body is just really supportive and, and really there. And I don't have any family here. So it's really like, that's my family. 
Um, the church is definitely my family. And it's crazy because, you know, I know a lot of people may have had different experiences with religion, but that's not what, you know, I feel like I have, right? It's nothing close to religion. It's really like a family. It's relationships. And so um, without support, I definitely believe I could have fell, yeah. right? But I've had, I've been having support along the way, and I think I've learned to bring the right support in. Absolutely. David, thank you for, for being a part of his support system. Um, do you remember when you first uh, met Jared and, uh, and what, what led you to be a part of his support system out here? Like, like I could relate to him and both of you in a lot of ways. First of all, we have the same faith, but also um, I came to Sacramento and I didn't know anybody out here. But this was my fresh start, not only for me as a person, um, but also as the organization with the guys, the community that I was a part of on the inside we made a decision. We're going to start our uh, nonprofit in Sacramento. And by the way, Rich, you're the first one getting out. You're the first one going to board. Hopefully you get out. You get out there, set the tone. And like, you know, and there you go into a land you don't know, deep in the heart of South Sac for the first six months. I didn't even leave the transitional house, <laughs> walk down the street. I remember my mom, she wasn't thinking nothing of it, but she got me a, a blue pair of feelers. And I, I never wore them. <laughs> I never wore them. And I was like, I'm not going to wear those down the street. You know, I barely even walked to the store because I didn't know the area. And I'm just acclimating after all those years. But how did you become, what was a little bit of your reentry story? And how did you come to meet Jared? I had plans to return home. I had plans to t return home. Um, well, I had a space with my. Uh, or was home? Uh, I grew up in Paso Robles, but. My spiritual mom, the reporter that wrote about me, the one that came into my life, her house is about 1,500 feet from the beach. I had a room, basically a studio. Um, her daughter was my girlfriend for like 10 years. We happened to break up right before it. And those plans weren't approved. I was also in the Toomey program inside of prison. and The Toomey plans were approved, and they were in Sacramento. Didn't have nobody here. And to me, is the urban ministry uh, project, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and I had no support and I had no family and I had $200. <laughs> and they sent me to a drug rehab. And I was there for like 19 days before I went into the Toomey program, which I started being the house manager. I started eventually managing like 14 of their homes, became the community liaison. Scott and ARC were up here uh, for one of the bills. My friend David Garnica called me down. I got to check it out. I got to go into the Capitol. I got involved. I was eventually the first member of ARC in Sacramento and became a life coach and was coaching people before I went and did business. But it's always been my passion to help and assist people. And... My faith, right? My church. That's what I've been doing. And Scott knows me. He knows that's who I am. That's what I'm about. He's seen it for eight years now. Um, so when Jared was out, Scott likes to connect people with people. That's what he does. Because he believes in community. He believes in community. And he knew that me and Jared had a lot in common. And I was older and I had already walked these streets. So he connected me with Jared, and I, that was it. I was like, okay, I got you. 
And I swooped him up, found out he was in the same prison I was in. He knew a lot of the same brothers I was in. We got the same doctrinal beliefs. Like, this is cool. I got, like, my little Timothy to my Paul, if I was ever that great. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's not only been me helping him. Yeah. Um, he brings a fresh breath of air and perspective to me, and he challenges me because he knows the Bible just as well as me. And it's... Uh, it's been like a revitalization, revitalization in my life. That's awesome to have a young man like Jared come in and to be able to help him and he listens. Yeah, and that's that's listening. Probably before uh, we didn't listen, no, and then no. your listening comes in humility. And uh, like you said, we used to say the community is the method of treatment. Get people in the community. I don't care how tough or how violent or whatever. Get them in a community where people are holding each other to their highest commitments. Most people in prison, you ask them, what are the three most important things in your life? And they might say, my family, God, my freedom. But then when the riot kicks off, something else is more important. Right? But when you begin to live in a place where these are my most important commitments, I have a community supporting me in those most important commitments, and when the riot kicks off, I'm not going. Come what may. I'd rather die in here and honor God or honor my family with my life rather than bow down to something else that is not what I'm committed to. And a lot of times you see the opposite happen. You receive a, a garner of respect from uh, from the powers that be. It's not always that way, but um, it, it definitely has happened to me like that before. So community is extremely important. Um, and that's really the that part of why we do this show to transform the mindsets of people, family members, friends, and those who have this set idea about the currently and formerly incarcerated. Like um, you watch these TV shows where, you know, the solution is give them a life sentence and they're gone out of society forever because once a criminal, always a criminal. That's not true. You get a young man in the community, just like at the the, the prison you guys were at, they had a very, very strong community, not only in the faith community, but also in the self-help community um, and addressing all of our, what they call criminogenic issues, what are addressing all the issues that got us there. And a lot of those programs aren't built by the state, but they're built by us. The old timers who were there who says, I know we need anger management. We need, you know, we need, um, trauma therapy or whatever it may be. So Jared, you said, so, so you ended up applying for a commutation, right? And what happened? So I applied for a commutation initially in, um, <clears throat> I want to say 2017. So in 2017, I applied for the commutation. I got interviewed. So if you get interviewed, you pretty much you're in, right? Like that's that's the consensus. Like everybody was getting um, an interview was going to get yeah. commuted. So I got the interview in 2017. Literally like a month later, I have a seizure in the gym. And they said that I battered an officer. So I went to the hole. So I went to the hole for two months. Um, they said I battered an officer. They found me guilty. I ended up appealing it. I beat the right up. Uh, they were trying to say I overdosed, and then I attacked the officer when they gave me the Narcan. But all the toxicology reports showed nothing, right? I mean, everybody knew. Like, I didn't use no drugs, right? Everybody. So not only my the blood in my system showed that I didn't have any drugs, but I had a lot of people supporting me, so I was able to beat in the appeal. And then I went back to the yard, and a lot of my friends who had also had interviews got commuted. This was in 2000. This was 
2018, sorry, 2018. And so around November, November came around, a lot of people are getting commuted, right? And you hear it, like, you know, they get that call to the program office and then yeah. you, they come out like a million bucks, right? Like, so I'm watching it happen to a lot of my close friends, right? I'm watching them go in, come out, go in, come out. December came around. And this is when uh, Governor Brown was going out. So he was doing a lot of commutations. Come in, come out. And then uh, I came to find out that they backed off of me because of what happened, right? They backed off of me. And it's amazing because I actually met somebody who was working on my commutation and was able to speak to her. And she was like, I remember your case. And she said that we couldn't support it at that time because of what happened. And but at that time when I didn't get it right, it, like it devastated me because here I go from being okay with never going home, you know, kind of accepting that reality to a glimpse of hope and then getting ready and putting forth all the information and then to get shut down. Right. It, it kind of crushed me a little bit. And then, um, and may I say something right there? Like you, you go before they call you in to, to, to speak to like an investigator right. to see, to check out on who you are. Yeah. Basically like a, like a mini board hearing. So they ask you questions. They ask you about your crime. Basically, they want to see if you're going to minimize or deny. They want to see if you know yourself. They want to see if you understand your causative and contributing factors and things like that. Right. And when it's proven that the reason why uh, that, you, that you had a seizure, that you didn't have any drugs in your system, that it wasn't an assault, and that it's proven, that information probably didn't get back to their desk. Right. Right. So uh, I go on, I, I ended up transferring to a level two because a, a lot of the SEALs were messing with me because I beat the the write-up. Um, like the lieutenant didn't like that because in, in prison, that culture is just to protect each other. And so they didn't like the fact that I um, I beat the appeal. And then, so I transferred to a level two. I ended up going to Solano State Prison. And at Solano, it, it really shook me up too. It's a whole different environment. Level two, the level two was crazy. Like I thought level two was going to be super chill. Level two was crazy. I was actually stood in Ironwood. But uh, I learned a lot in the level two. I learned a lot about myself. And it's crazy because right before I got my sentence commuted, uh, my wife actually had left me. So I was married. I got married when I was about 20 years old. And right before I got my sentence commuted, my wife left me. So I was kind of like really leaning on God, right? Like I could say I was going through like a rough patch, just kind of a lot of things didn't feel. I mean, it was like I just got shaken up. Like everything got shaken up. All my comfortability got shaken up. And then I got commuted. <laughs> right? Like just on a regular day, you know, I came, came in from the yard working out, made the little soup with mackerel, about to eat, and the captain comes and tells me that uh, your sentence has been commuted. He didn't say your sentence commuted. He said your sentence was changed to um, 20, 2024. That's what he told me. No, 2022. You say your sentence was changed to 2022. I'm like, what? <laughs> right? Like, what, what do you mean? And he just leaves, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? And yeah, so, that's huh? That's odd. Right. Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? So then I, I called Scott and I was like, hey, they said uh, my sentence changed. He's like, yeah, you got commuted. And so it was like amazing, right? I was like, it, it was, it felt, it felt amazing, but then it didn't feel real though. Cause it's like, okay, like what happens next? Right? Yeah. Like, like I wasn't going home. I had to still go before board. So it just felt like, okay, what's next? Right. right. But I was like, cool though. Like I, I got a chance. So it felt amazing though, to, to stay faithful. Right. And to stay the course. And I think that's what pre prepared me for coming home too. Right. Is sometimes you have hardships that are out of your control. Sometimes you have trials and, and things that come up that are out of your control and you got to just keep grinding through it. 
And it doesn't mean you have a smile the whole time, right? But it means that you grind through it and you don't compromise and you don't Yeah. You don't stay down, right? It, the Bible says a righteous man falls uh, seven times and gets back up, but a fool won't. Mm-hmm. Right? So I just kept getting up, right? Dusting off. Fool no more. Dusting off, right? So Jared, when you look back at the video, um, think back to the last time that you that you watched the documentary. Um, what affected you the most out of the whole documentary? Watching it back later on as an as an adult. Honestly, the the biggest thing that impacted me the first time I seen it. So the first time, so in order for them to to release it, we had to screen it. So I screened it in prison. Me and Juan, we were in the same yard. We screened it together. And I think watching um, Yesenia Castro having to grab a cup out of the cupboard with the little um, the little plastic machine thing, right? Mm-hmm. That right there just broke me because I realized that because of my actions, somebody never walk again, right? That part right there is what hit me hard. It like tore me up. You and cry. It, huh? You cry. I didn't cry. Um, not because I'm tough or anything like that. I just feel like I, I've stopped myself from crying so much that it's hard for it just to happen naturally now, which I kind of regret. <laughs> but like, I, I not that you had to or anything. I just right, yeah. No, but no, I didn't cry. Um, but it affected you. It definitely affected me. It definitely helped me understand the magnitude of what I did. Mm-hmm. And then when I was released, I watched it again. And I think what really hit me the second time was watching Antonio go home and what he went home to. And it kind of speaks to the question, you know, if you don't have that support, if you don't have that community, what happens? And I realized that um, there probably was an unrealistic amount of pressure put upon him as a to be successful because he got out at 15 or 16, at 15 or 16 years old to to do a lot of things. And I mean, you can see from the documentary what he what he was living in. Right. It's hard. It's hard to thrive. A studio apartment with seven people. Right. And, I mean, he was 16, so it's not like he could do what I did and be like, I'm going to go to a transitional house in a whole different city, in a whole different county. He kind of was confined to that space. And I think it played a part in him uh, coming back. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's, it's it's sad to me, right, because he's so smart. Right? Like, that dude is so smart. Like, we, oh, yeah. we spoke to uh, UCLA, to a class at UCLA a couple weeks ago, and he's so smart. And I just, I felt guilty because I remember thinking, like, man, this dude got it. Like, why didn't you smash? Why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? Because you got it. But I didn't realize what he was facing, right? So that part really hit me the second time around, too. Yeah. I think about when he was in there and he was talking about becoming a Navy SEAL. And and I thought, man, here's a kid who could actually – you know, go to some type of ROTC program and then eventually go to the military. But then that's that window has been closed. That door has been closed uh, for for anybody who's committed a felony. And I think it would be in the old in the old old days. I don't know how, how when when they stopped it, probably the 80s or something like that. They allowed that. And I think that that would have been a good a good structure for him. But you're right. He was brilliant. Um, Jared, we got a few more minutes here. <clears throat> so now you're out. What's your what's your career today, or not career? Or what do you what are you doing as far as schooling, your job? I know that you work at the state capitol. Maybe unpack a little bit about what you're doing at the capitol, um, and um, and uh, aspirations as far as your schooling and your church. And then I would like to close with um, a message to family members and loved ones who have kids in prison, kids in jail, facing life sentences, long sentences. What do you say to the family members? 
And then this podcast will be inside prison and eventually to those doing lots of time if you got a message for them. Absolutely. So currently I work for the Senate Public Safety Committee as a committee assistant. So I basically um, am part of a team that puts together uh, hearings that about every bill that has to do with public safety, as well as um, what, what encompasses that is corrections. So um, the bills that change prison reform, um, kind of some of the overseeing of, of bills or policies that change things in prison, as well as policing, and then as well as, you know, just crimes in general that affect um, all of us, right? <laughs> just the governing laws that affect all of us that have to do with public safety all go through that committee. And so basically we just do all the behind the scene works um, to, to have the, the bills heard by the members. And then as far as school, um, I'm currently studying criminal justice. And I chose to study criminal justice because I have lived experience in the justice system. However, I wanted to learn um, the other aspect. I wanted to learn the black and white. I wanted to learn the textbook side of it just in order to to be able to reach to be able to reach more people. And I'm hoping to um, graduate and go to law school and then with that um, be a lawyer maybe a public defender or even being a consultant for public safety in the future. That's, those are some of my, my aspirations is to do one of those two things. And then as far as church, I just, I just love being involved in the ministry. Like I just love speaking. I've been able to, I've been blessed to have a lot of opportunities to speak to different people and to speak about basically my story. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like testimony is so powerful. And I think, um, for those who, who are still serving a long time, uh, for people who are supporting somebody who's serving a, a lengthy sentence, you just can't give up hope. For those um, who are the family of somebody who's serving a long time, just love them. Just love them through it all. Um, I understand that sometimes financially, um, even sometimes your time is hard to give, but a letter or some pictures goes so far. Or being able to answer one 15-minute phone call a week goes so far. And even if, you know, you feel like they may be struggling or they may not have that hope. Um, I didn't have that hope, but people kept loving me. People kept, um, people continued to stay in my corner despite it, through it all, even when I was um, still a knucklehead and still messing up. And then for you guys who are serving those sentences too, I mean, I had 162 years to life, so if anybody, I can empathize with you. I never had the idea or the concept that I would go home, but I lived free, right? Depending upon whether I was going to be in prison forever or not. And so I just encourage you guys to find that peace. For me, it was Jesus. Um, I don't know what it is for you guys, but I just encourage that you, you seek that out because even though you may be serving a long time, you can obtain that peace. And then people, it's crazy because I remember we'll be at the basketball court and people will be like, how much time you got? I'm like, I all day. And they're like, why are, you, why are you smiling? Why you look so happy? I'm like, because it's like, I'm good. Like, I'm good whether I'm here or out. And uh, I, I believe that when we find that peace, that's when, I mean, things that we never thought could happen can happen. And um, I believe I'm a testament to it. I got out at 25 years old on a sense of 162 years to life. Um, I've seen a lot of my peers, a lot of people around me. I've seen a lot of older guys that get that opportunity. So just never give up hope. You can't change what happened yesterday. You can't change what happened a minute ago. 
all you can do is control now and tomorrow. So I just encourage you guys, man, just keep grinding. Keep grinding, and uh, and it's love. All right. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, David. Appreciate you coming on, man. Pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, um, I think that um, we brought a lot of hope today. So this has been another episode of The Prison Post. Join us every Wednesday. We release, release an episode. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms, all the major social media channels. Look us up. I'll share a little bit next week when I release Jared's episode, a little bit more about him and his story and the triumphs of freedom. Uh, thank you. <laughs>